0: You, the sinless Savior, humbling yourself to death for ruined and wretched sinners to redeem and restore us to Yourself. May the weight of that truth wash over us now as we look to Your Word give us the grace to hear it. In Christ's name we ask. If you would remain standing for the reading of God's word today's passages. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 52.
1: the ground. one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to them at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked.
0: I want to invite you to take a seat. If you'll notice in a couple of our songs this morning, and it's always intentional, Mitchell does a fantastic job of aligning the songs that we sing as best we can with the passage that we'll be preaching. Um, a couple of our songs, you, you notice the phrase, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? That's a cry directly from Scripture, from multiple Psalms, where the psalmist is enduring some level of suffering and torment that is prolonged. And so he cries out to God, he pours his heart out to God and he just says, how long, O Lord, how long? So I want to invite you to think and consider this morning as we begin, have you ever asked that question to God? Have you ever asked him, how long? If you haven't, um, that may mean that you have lived an incredibly privileged life where you, know, you really haven't faced that much turmoil, that much suffering, everything pretty much up to this point in your life has been really good. Another reason you may not have asked that question is you're not really good with being honest with your pain. And a lot of us are like that. We're not, we're not great at being transparent and honest with our pain and with our suffering not just with other people not even with God we fear for a number of reasons that if we make known our pain and our suffering somehow we are too weak somehow we are not spiritual enough maybe we're afraid of what others would would think of us I don't know But not all of us are good at at bearing our pain and our suffering before God and before others. And that's where I want us to think about another thing before we start. What do you believe is the most difficult tension in Christianity? Or maybe another way to put this. What is one aspect of Christianity that causes you to doubt Christianity? Or is there anything about the Bible or is there anything about Christian theology, anything about God that causes you from time to time to have doubts as to whether this is real or not? Or is this the right way? Because there are multiple religions and philosophies where people are trying to find access to God and they're looking for him and they believe they have the right way. What is it about Christianity that sometimes makes you doubt or maybe hesitate or take a step back. And, and maybe you're not sure, is this really the right way? You know, there are things like the Trinity, you know? The Trinity is one of those doctrines where it's almost so difficult to understand or even communicate that sometimes you're like, is that even right? You know, how can God be at the exact same time three and one? How can the Father be God, the Son be God, the Spirit be God, and yet we don't have three gods? We just have one God with three persons, you know? Sometimes that that can be really difficult to reconcile. Or when you think about God's sovereignty, God's sovereign over all things, and yet humans are responsible. How, How are we responsible In light of God's sovereignty Or how does God's sovereignty actually work If we have real responsibility You know there are difficult things Within Christianity that can cause us to maybe Maybe have some doubts But I would submit to you that Probably the number one thing that causes people To doubt God And especially the God of the Bible Is not theological But experiential It has nothing to do With what you would find in a theology textbook And everything to do with A phone call you receive from a doctor. Or that horrific call you would receive that your child has been in an accident. It's experiential, it's not theological. Pain and suffering cause us to doubt God's existence far more than any doctrine about who he is. As revealed in his word or as communicated in any theology book. How can a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and all-good allow suffering and evil to exist, period? But if it does exist, you know, in the world, how could he allow those he professes to love most to endure pain and suffering? See, our faith is in danger of fading when everything in our life falls apart When everything in your life is going really Really good, everything's good you're, you're happy, your family's healthy You have no problems, you have no issues Your relationships are healthy Your relationship with God feels healthy You know, it's good It's easy to come to church every week It's easy to go to life groups they, you know, Anybody have any prayer requests? No, no you know Just, we're good you know? I mean, and that's a blessing. That's wonderful. We, we want those times. We want to hang on to them. But we all know they're not going to last. Everyone in this room is either currently enduring deep suffering and pain or will one day endure deep suffering and pain. And it's our job as pastors and elders to help you prepare for that. And I can think of no better way Than to consider the pain and the suffering of jesus in the garden of gethsemane we get an insider's look at how jesus prepared for his final moments of life on this earth before his death and before his subsequent resurrection we get to see jesus express his pain and his suffering and then we get to see him respond to it so jesus is going to show us this morning what do we do? when all we know how to do is to cry out to God, "How long, O Lord?" What do we do when pain and suffering and sorrow takes over our lives, just sweeps over us like a flood? What do we do? Let's look to the Garden of Gethsemane to see. I have basically in your notes that are in the liturgy booklet. Um, the, the separate sheet in the booklet um, Basically two points I, I want us to look at two things from Jesus That we see here To help us know how to best walk through Pain and suffering to God's glory The first thing I want us to do Is I want us to see Jesus' fear I want us to see his fear And the second thing I want us to do I want us to see Jesus' faith So I want us to see his fear And then I want us to see his faith. Okay. Let's look at Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So I want us to stop right there. So just to put it in context for you, we have—if you were here last week—you saw we were in the upper room. We were with the disciples. We were with Jesus as they were enjoying the Passover meal, what we know as the Last Supper, where Jesus basically reverts all this tradition of the Passover and says uh, the. The wine and the bread, they are actually representative, not of something that happened a long time ago in Egypt, but it's about what's—it's representative about what's going to happen the very next day, and so Jesus has this meal with his disciples, and he says, my body's going to be broken, my blood is going to be shed for your salvation. And they leave this place, and it's probably late into the night. It's at least midnight, okay? So as you look at the disciples and you just kind of roll your eyes at them, oh, my goodness, why can't these dudes stay awake? I mean, it's pretty late, okay? I mean, you know, just be a little easy on them here it's it's late they have had a really full day and a really full week there's been a lot going on and so the disciples are here they're at this garden really late john tells us in, in his account that this was a place the garden of gethsemane where jesus and his disciples went too often and they would go there to have some solitude It was just a quiet place where they could connect with god through prayer and so this was uh, a common thing it wasn't uh, this is honestly why judas knew they would probably be there because he knew this is where jesus loved to go all the time so, so Gethsemane was a place he was at frequently and as Jesus goes in he kind of surprises us a little bit this whole time Jesus has been in front of everything he, he has told his disciples he predicted his own death three separate times to them it's the disciples who don't get it Jesus fully understands that he's going to die he has said it multiple times at the last supper he just left a place where he said my body is going to be broken and my blood is going to be shed he is fully aware of what's going to happen. And, and yet, look what we see here in verse 34. It's said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And so if you notice your notes, I've kind of formatted them a little bit differently. I, I want to try to help create a different uh, sermon listening experience here. We've got just questions. Okay, so I don't have all the subnotes filled in there. I'll send those to you in an email, but we have just questions, so I want to encourage you if you if you're a note taker to take notes there. And the first question I want us to consider here is why was Jesus so distressed? Like we said, he knew it was coming. It's not like all of a sudden he's like, "Oh man, I'm going to die like in a few hours." Like it's going to happen. I'm going to die and it just like takes him off guard and, you know, he goes into panic mode. No, there's no panic here. He knew the whole time. So it couldn't be that. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. In fact, it's precisely because Jesus knows what's about to happen that he becomes so sorrowful that he could die. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt so horrified that you could just curl up in a ball and die? Why would he do that? Because he knew what he was about to endure. What's he about to endure? Jesus is about to be abandoned by his closest followers. You know, these guys that are so bold and they're like, I would never leave you. I would never deny you. Jesus, I'll be with you till the end. You know what? I'll take it a step further. I would even die for you, Jesus. And these same guys, they're about to, as soon as this big mob comes with the clubs and the swords, they're gone. The followers, they see this mob, and they see Jesus get arrested, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, and they are gone. They scatter to the wind. His closest followers are not even going to stay there and be arrested. I mean, think about it. They're not even going to be arrested with him. We see their abandonment even here. Jesus says, I want you to stay here, and I want you to pray. I want you to wait with me. I want you to watch. Jesus brings his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, even closer. Luke tells us that Jesus, after he brings them into the garden, he just goes a stone's throw away. So he's like really close to them, which means that everything Jesus is about to say in his prayer, the disciples would have heard. This is Jesus teaching his disciples by experience once again, where he's walking in and he's like, this is how you, you guys are about to endure pain and suffering and sorrow too, and this is how you deal with it. And they were supposed to stand there and watch and they fall asleep. Jesus is totally alone. He's also about to be betrayed by a friend. Now, Judas wasn't Peter, James, and John, but he had been following Jesus this whole time. We've considered Judas in a number of ways the last three weeks. But we need to see it again. It's not the Romans, it's not the Jews that are ultimately going to turn Jesus in. It's his own guy, Judas. He's gonna be betrayed by, have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Like what, does, what does that do to your heart? Jesus knew it was coming. He's going to be scorned. He's going to be arrested by Roman soldiers eventually. He's got this mob of Jewish people that are here from the scribes and the chief priests. The Romans are going to arrest him. The Jewish religious leaders, they've already rejected them in their hearts, but they're going to reject them with their words more formally here later. He's going to be totally maligned by them. They're going to try to come up with anything they possibly can to send him to his death. And even when they can't come up with anything, they're like, kill him anyway. We don't have any witnesses. We don't have anybody. They're breaking their own laws to try to bring this man to the point of death and execution. And they do it. They essentially threaten Pilate with a riot unless they crucify Jesus. He knows it's coming. He knows he's going to be whipped. He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he's going to be mocked. He knows he's going to feel the spit of constant people around him. He knows. He knows. He knows. He's going to have to carry a wooden beam up to Golgotha. He knows they're going to take him, his mangled body, at this point, and they're gonna lay him on that piece of wood, that tree. He knows that nails are going to be pierced through his hands. He knows he's going to suffer in anguish, physical anguish for hours and hours and hours. As he slowly but surely, enduring that pain, loses the ability to breathe. A slow, agonizing death is awaiting Jesus you ever get sick i used to get sick at the thought of having to run 220s you know on the track um for basketball conditioning i never understood why are we going to a track for a basketball conditioning let's go to a gym but we would go to that dang track in the middle of summer and we would run those 220s and we had to meet a certain time and the day before we would run like i would get physically sick at the thought of having to do that because i absolutely hated running like, you know, we get kind of physically sick and sorrowful over, you know, any kind of pain that we know is coming. It's one thing to just be hit and, and it be, you know, caught off guard. But if you know it's coming and you kind of have to prepare your mind for pain, it's tough. Jesus is about to endure tremendous physical pain and suffering. He knows full well it's coming. And so he staggers in the garden. But here's what I want you to see. None of that. None of that. Is contained in the cup that Jesus asked to be removed. See what Jesus says in verse 36? He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. In this little sentence, remove this cup from me. It's the cup, it's the cup that has brought Jesus to his knees. On his face, Luke tells us that he's sweating drops of blood. It's the cup. The cup has brought him to this place. And, friends, the physical pain and agony and torment of the cross is not what Jesus is afraid of. He's not afraid of the physical pain, he's afraid of what's in that cup. So the second question I want to ask is, what is the cup? What is in the cup? What is uh, Jesus talking about here? And I want you to turn really quickly in your Bible to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. We're just going to look at one verse there. There are multiple passages we could consider, but Psalm 75 will do the trick. Psalm 75. Remove this cup from me. Jesus is on his knees. He's pouring his heart out to God. He's sweating drops of blood. He is sorrowful and distressed to the point of death because of the cup. So we, need, we really need to know what this is. We need to know what Jesus is so afraid of. In Psalm 75, verse 8, we read this. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You see, the cup was a metaphor. The cup was a metaphor of God's wrath and God's judgment. You see, God's wrath and God's judgment go hand in hand. And there are multiple times in the Old Testament where there are entire people groups or individuals who would be said to have to bear the cup of God's wrath. It would be literally, it's almost, you know, in a cup poured out on the wicked of the earth. And so the cup that Jesus asks to be removed from him so that he doesn't have to drink it down to the dregs is a cup that is filled with God's holy and righteous anger. God's holy and righteous anger. And so that that leads us to ask another question. Why would Jesus have to take a cup of God's holy and righteous anger? Why does Jesus have this cup? Because the cup of God's wrath is reserved for sinners. The cup of God's wrath is reserved for evildoers. It's reserved for the wicked. And and what do we know about Jesus? Jesus isn't wicked. Jesus isn't sinful. He didn't even commit one sin his entire life. So why on earth would Jesus have to take the cup of God's wrath, which is reserved for sinners and sinners alone, and that's where I want you to turn somewhere else. I want you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five. Even though we know this verse probably many of us really well, I want us to read it. I don't want you to just hear it from me. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. I want us to think about this for a second. Jesus is in the garden. He's pouring his heart out to God. Take away this cup. He's sorrowful to the point of death. Not because of the physical anguish he's going to suffer, but because he's going to bear the wrath of God. He's going to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Why? He's sinless. He's not wicked. He's good. Look at verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That's one of the most important little phrases in the Bible. There's so much wrapped up into that little phrase. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He had, Jesus had no sin in him at all, not in his heart, and then he committed no sins. So the only way for Jesus to be treated as someone who had committed sin, sin has to be placed on him because there is no sin in him at all. So that's the only way. And Paul is very clear here. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then look at the last part of the sentence so that, what's the purpose of it? What's the purpose of Jesus being made sin? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The absolute, you know, Jesus asked a question here in verse 35. He says, you know, going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus is doing something crazy here it seems. He's asking God to find another way. Find another way. Is there another way for sinners to be saved, to be reconciled with you, and for me to not have to bear your wrath? You see what he's asking? Is there a way? Is there a way for your people to be with you and for me to stay in your presence and to stay in your blessing and your goodness and to not have to face your judgment and to not have to face your wrath and we're going to see a little bit later the answer to that is no there is no other way the only way for anyone who has committed even one sin the only way for any of us to be reconciled to god to be with him forever to, as the song said to feast in the house of Zion to be with God and experience his joy and his pleasure forever is for Jesus to bear our, the wrath and the judgment that we deserve we can only be reconciled to God if Jesus is cut off from God and Jesus sees in the cup all that he would have to endure to make that possible and he staggers he stumbles he stops and he begs God to take it away. So what does Jesus do here? We see his his tremendous suffering. We we see why. Why is Jesus so, so distraught? It's because he's going to face God's wrath. He's going to face consuming fire and judgment from God that we deserve. And what does he do in response to this? praise you see that he says my soul is very sorrowful even to death even to death he says i could die i'm so sorrowful over what i'm about to face he says remain here and watch and going a little farther he fell on the ground Do you know the the proper jewish practice for prayer You know, we we oftentimes pray on our knees or we'll be sitting or whatever, but the way you were supposed to pray back then was you were supposed to stand up. That was the proper position for prayer. And we see Jesus a number of times. He's praying in that way. And in this moment, Jesus isn't standing up. Jesus takes a few more steps into that garden. He just stumbles. and He just falls on his face and he begs God to take it away. He begs God to take it away. I mean, and this is kind of a surprising picture of Jesus. Because, and the disciples would have been really surprised. You know, you expect Jesus to be this conquering Messiah king to look really strong all the time. And even knowing that he's going to die, almost face his death like a, like a valiant warrior. You know, you think of the movie 300. You've got Leonidas and he's facing all these arrows that are surrounding him. And he just stands there and like roars at the top of his lungs as the, as the arrows come down and he... And he's killed and he dies. Or you think of the movie Mulan. See what I did there? You go from 300, you got the adults in Mulan. Okay, so you think of the movie Mulan. And you have uh, the scene where the family's having that last little meal together before the father is supposed to go off to war. He's been drafted into the war, but he's, he's, he's older. But you have the Huns, and they've invaded, and they're in, and we've got to get as many men as we possibly can. And Mulan, she, like, she slams the T down, and she's really worried, and she's really upset that her dad's going to go and die. And so she's like, so you will die doing what's right. And he just kind of stoically sits there, and he's like, it is an honor to protect my country and my family. You know, just really stoically, he's just, he's just kind of come to the place where he's, he's cool with it. Like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to die, but it's for honor's sake. And then you have Jesus. And in his great moment, in his hour, where he will die, this heroic, self-sacrificial death, you see none of that. You have no famous, strong, last words. He dies the death of an ordinary criminal. And he died much like those criminals did. And here in the garden, even before it happens... In this private moment, he's on his knees, he's on his face, he's crying out to God something we would never expect him to say, remove this cup, take it away. Do you understand the gravity of what's happening here? If God removed the cup from Jesus, he would be giving it to you. The cup is reserved for sinners. Jesus is going to be counted as sinful, as a sinner. It's the only way he can take the cup. And so, Jesus, in this moment, he's responding to this tremendous turmoil and suffering by pouring his heart out to God. And you notice what he does here? Something we're just not very good at. He doesn't suppress his suffering. He doesn't try to hide his pain. He makes it all known. He doesn't, you know, stand with his chest out and cry, bring it on, you know? Bring it on, I'm ready, let's go. Where's Judas? I'm gonna find him. I'm gonna betray myself, you know? No, we don't see Jesus doing that. We see Jesus on his face, crying out, not bring it on, but take it away. If Jesus can do that in this moment with the knowledge that he had, right? He knew there was no other way. He knew there was no other way. And what does he say first though? Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. There was no doubt in his mind that God could find a way to rescue sinners if he wanted to or if it was possible. And the Father by his nose says, no, there is no other way. It's not possible. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to that. But really, I just want you to consider for a second your own pain, your own suffering, anything you may be enduring right now or something you've endured in the past. Have you been this honest with God? You know, sometimes I think those of us who think really theologically, and we try to be really spiritual, and we try to be really right about everything, we're almost afraid to pray to God from the depths of our hearts. You know, we read the Psalms, and some of the psalmists say some things that sound really offensive to God, you know, and we're like, oh man, that's so blasphemous. How, can, how could you ever say that? And we almost think that it's, there's a stain on us forever wrestling with God, I want you to know today it's good to wrestle with God it's good because we're not going to understand everything that he does we never will and so in those moments of confusion and hopelessness I want to encourage you to do what Jesus does and, and pour your, your heart out to God and so this, this last question in this point I want us to consider what should we see in Jesus' fear? what should we see? Well, I think we should at least see four things. The first thing that we should see is the wrath that we deserve. If Jesus didn't take that cup, you would take that cup. And I want to warn any of you this morning who are not in Christ, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, there is a cup waiting for you. And it's the cup of God's wrath and his judgment and you will be separated forever from him and condemned. But there's good news. Jesus, we're going to see it. Spoiler alert, he takes the cup. He takes the cup of God's wrath. It's poured out on him so that you could go free, so that you could be counted as righteous. He's counted as sinful, so you could be counted as righteous. But see the wrath we deserve. The second thing I want you to see is and I was hitting on it, the intimacy and honesty of prayer. It's hard for us to be intimate and honest with God. I I think for a number of reasons, social media makes it really hard. You know, if if you try to put forward your best life on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, I think sometimes that creeps into your real life where the only things we post on social media are the positive things. I don't post the painful things. I don't you know however many followers I have they all don't need to know that you know they can know the fun stuff they can know stuff about pencils and writing and and books and and the things that I love my family but the hard stuff the painful stuff I don't want them to see and I don't want them to know and sometimes that can creep into our real lives where not only do we not want random followers to know we don't want our spouses to know we don't want our children to know And we have the audacity to be like, I don't want God to know as if He doesn't already. And so we hide our pain, we hide our suffering, and we try to put on a good face and act like everything's all right all the time. And Jesus shows us in this passage, you don't have to do that. Everything doesn't have to be okay. When everything's not okay, you can be honest. And I pray this is a place where we're reflective of that relationship between God and His people where that vertical relationship is paralleled in our horizontal relationships with each other, where we can be honest with God. I pray that this is a place where we can be honest with one another and bear burdens together. But social media makes that hard. We never want to look weak. And we, you know, honestly, we're afraid of offending God, right? If you talk about your pain and your suffering in a really honest way with other people, you know, whenever Eric and I, we, we come across a news story of, A a parent who abandons a child, a helpless little baby, and the baby dies because of the neglect of the parents. You know what one of our first questions is? One of our first questions every time is how could God let that happen? It's good to ask those questions. Be honest with your pain. Jesus says, take it away. So never be afraid when you're sick, when you have a horrible diagnosis, when someone close to you is sick, never be afraid of saying, please bring immediate healing. Take it away. Take it away. I think sometimes we're so quick. I know that I'm guilty of this. So quick to be like, whatever you want, God, whatever you want is fine. We we skipped the first part of Jesus' prayer. That's the second part. We're going to get to it. We're good at that part. Whatever you want, Lord, just have your way. And we're almost afraid to ask him to take away our pain. He may not take away your pain. But it is good and right to ask your father to remove any cup of suffering that is being currently poured out on you. It is good and right and he cares. And that's the third thing I want you to see, the depth of God's love. He loves you so much. If you're in Christ today... God loves you so much because he poured out his vicious wrath on his beloved son so that you would be with him That's, there's no greater testimony to the love of God for you That God himself would bear the pain and the suffering and the anguish of being separated from himself. So we have this, you know, Trinitarian bond that is being for the first time in history broken. Father and son, they're eternal. And they've lived in this perfectly harmonious, loving, joyful relationship and receive nothing but goodness and love and blessing from one another. And in this moment on the cross, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As as the Father's wrath is being poured out on the Son, that relationship is broken so that our relationship with him can be mended. He bears that pain and that suffering for you. See the depths of his love. And the last thing, Just know that Jesus can identify with your pain. You will never endure any amount of pain and suffering and sorrow where Jesus can't say, I know, I've been there. I've been there. See in Jesus' cry in the garden, see in his pain, see in his fear someone who can fully, 100% identify with you. That's one thing that attracts me to Christianity. That's one thing that makes me love it. We don't have a God who's totally transcendent, who's just, just beyond us and has no idea what it's like to, to walk this earth. Jesus, God, the eternal son of God, became a man and did all the ordinary things that we do, and he endured the pain and the agony that we endure. He knows, he knows what it's like. You have a high priest in Jesus who can fully identify with you in your pain and suffering. His fear, his fear teaches us to be honest with our pain, to pour out our hearts to God and to know that he will listen, that he will understand and he will answer according to his wisdom and his goodness because he did not even spare his own son to make us right with him. See his fear. The second thing I want you to see is really the second part of this passage, and it's, I want you to see Jesus' faith. So how does Jesus respond to his father's no? Now when I say that, I know that we don't have an audible answer from God, but the simple fact that Jesus goes to the cross later <laughs> means that The Father found no other way. There was no other way for uh, people to be reconciled with God except through the death of Jesus. So let's look at verse 36. Jesus responds with faith in his Father's will. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. yet not what I will but what you will. It's another way of saying align my desires with yours. In the moment of my deepest pain and my deepest suffering align my desires with yours. Bring me contentment here and help me obey in this moment. Jesus is expressing full confidence in the will of God. He has total faith. In his father's plan and his father's actions in the face of his fear of the suffering he will endure at his father's hands and so that's where i want to ask a couple things what could jesus have done here so in this moment the first part remove this cup remove this cup from me remove this pain you're crying out for god to change your circumstances maybe And then God answers your prayer with a no. Has God ever answered one of your prayers with a no? And, but it's been one of those prayers where it would make sense for a loving God to answer with a yes. You know, if God really loves me, surely he will, he will take this away. I, I love it that he can identify with me. That's great. I love it that, you know... He understands, and he's been there. It'd be nice if he would take it away, though. It'd be nice if he would take it away, and then you get a no, and he doesn't take it away, and there's just pain. I, th- I think of, I think I think of my aunt who lost her husband, and uh, just he was he was driving a, an eighteen wheeler, fell asleep. Or no, sorry. He was driving home um, from work, fell asleep, and hit an 18-wheeler head-on. Gone. She had three kids: teenager, ten-year-old, you know, seven-year-old. And then some years later, her oldest son dies in a tragic plane accident. Just you know, the the plane, commercial jet, takes off on the wrong runway, clips some trees, lands, everyone dies except a co-pilot. Some years later, a few years ago, her nephew killed in a freak hunting accident. At some point, it, it just becomes overwhelming. Too much. You almost expect more sorrow from God than blessing, you know? So, so what do we do? What do we do When God answers our prayers with a no. No, I will not remove this pain. No, I will not uh, remove this sorrow or the suffering. We have to do what Jesus did and what Adam failed to do. Do you remember Adam in the garden taking you all the way back? So in the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed the full pleasure of God and the full presence of God. They're in a garden, much like Jesus is here, except their garden is full of nothing but happiness and nothing but goodness. And then they're presented with a test. The snake comes, Satan, he tempts them to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's love for them. And what does Adam do? Adam and Eve, they fail that test and they disobey and they fail to trust God's will. Jesus reverses that. You see, while Adam disobeyed in a garden of paradise, Jesus fully submitted and obeyed God's will in a garden of agony. If Jesus had followed the steps of Adam and ran away from his sufferings, that's what he could have done. He could have fled or he could have fought, right? Think about what Jesus could have done here. In this moment, his father says no, and if he answered like some of us do whenever God tells us no, he could have caused the ground to split when his betrayer came. Judas could have been swallowed up in the ground, right? Jesus could have struck every single one of his enemies in Jerusalem dead in this moment and and just escaped and totally avoided the cross. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. What does Jesus do? In the face of suffering, in the face of His fear, He boldly and humbly trusts God's will, and when he trusts God's will, he acts accordingly. He obeys God's will. He walks out. I want you to look at toward the end of this passage. Verse 41. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So this is the moment. This is the moment. He's had his scene in the garden where he's prayed and he's wrestled with God. Remove this cup. No, I will not remove the cup. Whatever you want, Father, your will be done. And now he has the opportunity. The temptation must have been at an all-time high right here, Is he going to obey? Is he going to face the cup? And look what it says. The son of man is betrayed in the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He doesn't even wait for him. He says, look, there they come. Let's go. Let's go. This humble resolve to follow God's will, even though he knows it means tremendous pain and suffering for himself. What about you and I? Are we willing to continue obeying God and following his will, even if we know it's going to cause us pain and sorrow and suffering? What if you knew, without a doubt, that whatever suffering you're enduring right now, God would not remove from you? Would you continue to obey him? Would you continue to love him? Would you continue to follow his will and be content with who you are in Christ, in him, and who he is to you? Is Jesus enough for you if God refuses to take away your pain? Is he enough? So what should we do? What should we do? What should we see in Jesus' faith here? I think, I think three things. Three things are really important for us to consider here. The first thing that we should see in response to Jesus' great faith is outside of Jesus' substitutionary death, there is no other way for sinners to be reconciled to God. That no, that silent no from heaven means the cross is the only way. It's the only way. If you have lost friends, if you have lost friends who are relying on their good works or following another philosophy or religion to try to make themselves right with God, I want to encourage you to have urgency about your prayers and about your conversations with them because there is only one way for sinners to be reconciled with God. That's why we send mission teams all over the world because there is only one way for sinners to be reconciled with God. And it is through the cross of Christ. Only because Jesus was cut off from God. And crucified on a tree. Bearing the wrath that we deserve. Can we call God Father? It's the only way for us to obtain any righteousness. Righteousness. It has to be an alien righteousness that is applied to us through our faith in the one who took our place on the cross. Well, the second thing is this. A healthy fear of God creates a holy faith in God. A healthy fear of God. What is Jesus fearing here? we said it. He's not fearing what the people are gonna do. To He's not even fearing his circumstances. He is fearing God in this moment. He's fearing God's wrath. It's going to be poured out against him. And so, you know, whenever you endure pain and sorrow and suffering, here's why you can have faith in God. The worst thing that any person can do to you, the worst thing that any disease can do to you, and the worst thing that any tragedy can do to you does not compare to what Jesus endured for you. So while your pain is real, while you can pour it out to God in full honesty and with full intimacy with him, you can at the exact same time trust in him and resolve to follow him because he has already taken care of your greatest pain. He has already taken care of your greatest sorrow and suffering in Christ. And the third thing that we can see in Jesus' faith is we see surrender to God's will, not surrender to present circumstances. So whatever you're enduring right now, don't surrender to it. Don't give in to it. Don't give in to your suffering. Instead, surrender yourself to God, and He not only will provide the comfort we're going to see in just a second the secret to this, but He will also provide the hope that you need to endure all of that. And that's the last thing I want us to look at here. Last question on your page What's the secret to this? You see, we see Jesus doing two things that we're really bad at doing. In the first place, He's being fully honest with God and his pain and his suffering, pouring his heart out to Him. And then, not only that, not only is he wrestling with God and asking God, "Remove this cup, take it away, take it away, take it away." At the end, when God says no, He says, "All right, whatever you have for me next, whatever you have, whatever your will is, make it mine. Make your will my will." How can we pray these two things without going mad? How can we do that? What is Jesus' secret here? And I think it's in two things. And the first is in verse 36. It's a secret to Jesus' faith. First, Jesus knew God personally. See, this isn't a random prayer to a distant God who just has all kinds of power and authority. In verse 36, Jesus prays in a way that really, you know, Jews really didn't pray this way. And he kind of brings something new on the scene. And when he teaches his disciples, he teaches them to pray, you know, our Father who is in heaven. Look at the intimacy here in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father. And, you know, just just for a clarify here, a lot of people get hung up on that. And it's like Abba is, you know, the Aramaic way of saying daddy. And, and it's just it's really not true. I mean, it's just the Aramaic word for father. It's, it's an intimate word that adult children would address their their dad, you know, as father. So while while it's not. You know, untrue that this could be translated as daddy. It's, it's just it, father. You know, pater is the Greek word for it. It's, you know, Jesus spoke in Aramaic and he has, uh, you know, both words. So this is probably the exact word that he said Abba. So he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Jesus asks not just some powerful deity to remove his pain, he asks his father. To remove his pain. And this is what I want you to see. Because Jesus knew God personally, it helped him trust God's plan. If you know, and this is another thing that's tough for people, but if you know that your pain and your suffering and your sorrow isn't just randomly happening to you by chance, but it's actually flowing through the loving hands of your Father, that will empower you to trust him that he knows what he's doing and to trust him to see you through and to provide for you in your deepest pain. And so that's, that's really a mystery of God's sovereignty that it's not just the good things that happen to you that are, that are from God, but in some mysterious way as we encounter in the story of Job, even the bad things, even the painful things, flow through God's hands, and I do find encouragement in that in this sense. If God had no control over the bad things that happened to me, then I should be a very terrified person. It's terrifying to think that God is only in control of the happy things that happen to me, and he has no power to, over the bad things. You know, a lot of people try to separate God in that way and they're like, God will be with me when bad things happen to me. But he has nothing to do with the bad things getting to me. I find no comfort in that because that's a small God who I can't really trust to be able to actually help me in the midst of my pain and my suffering. But that's not the kind of God that we know. Our Father Sends both rain and sunshine. Our Father sends both blessing and painful circumstances. It all flows out of his hands. And so I want to encourage you. You're not praying to a distant deity who has no interest in you. When you pour your heart out to God and you ask him to remove your pain, you are asking your father who played some role in some mysterious way in allowing that pain to come to you. Jesus knew this, and this is why he prayed the way he did, and it's why he trusted the way he did. And the second thing is this. Jesus knew God's plan. He knew there was purpose to his pain. If you know there's purpose to pain, it, it helps you endure the pain a little bit better. You know, think of Aaron with PT. You know, I hurt my foot in high school in PT, and whenever they were working on it uh, to, to help me recover, to get back on the court, a lot of the things they did to my foot hurt really bad. You know, it was really, really painful, but I, I didn't have, you know, it was easy to endure because I knew that through that pain, I was going to get stronger and I was going to get better, and that it was going to be for my ultimate good. But... You know, pain that seems senseless, like stepping on a Lego, you know, in, in, a, in a kid's toy room in the middle of the night. That seems kind of senseless. That pain's hard to endure. It also hurts really bad. But think about it. Whatever you're enduring right now, if it's senseless, if there's no meaning to it, if there's no purpose to it, if it's just because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, that's tough to endure. But if you know that God is working all things, all things, all good things, all bad things for your good, and you know there's a purpose to your pain, it will help you endure. And another thing that Jesus knew, he knew the plan, which means he knew the end of the story. He knew that he was going to die and he was going to suffer At the hands of his father, he was going to bear God's wrath, but he knew that three days later, he would take his life back. And here's what you and I know. Whatever we're enduring right now, whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever suffering we're enduring, we know that there is coming a day where we will weep no more. The last place I want you to turn is Revelation 21. I want you to see it. I want you to see it. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. Because Jesus suffered in your place, all of your suffering has meaning and purpose because it has an end and the joy and the pleasure that we will experience because of what Christ has done will totally drown out all the suffering that we endure now. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice come or from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God." The only way that's possible, the only way that's possible is if Jesus takes the cup Because Jesus takes the cup of God's wrath, we can call ourselves his people and we can call him our God and we will, praise God, one day be with him. And what's that gonna look like? Look at the very next verse in verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I love that. He'll wipe away every tear. And just to reinforce it, he says, there will be no mourning or crying, no more pain. That's what we have to hope for in Jesus. So if you're suffering right now, whatever you're enduring or if you're about to, you can do so grounded in knowing that the God you pray to is not just some distant deity, but he is your father and the end of your pain is nothing but pleasure. It's coming. There's coming a day where all of our pain will be forgotten. The former things will pass away and all we will experience will be the fullness of God, which means the fullness of joy, the fullness of pleasure. And our faith that we have right now that we have to work for and wrestle with, it will be no more because we will have sight. We will no longer be trusting God. We will be seeing God. Let's pray. Father, That's our great hope. Our greatest hope is not in ourselves. When we consider how much pain and suffering that's in the world, when we consider all the things that we are enduring, all the things that we could endure, and all the things that we will endure. Father, it overwhelms us And oftentimes we don't know how to deal with our pain and sorrow. We don't know what to do with our suffering. So Father, I pray that you would help us to follow the example of your son and be honest with our pain. Help us to cry out to you and find solace in having your ear. And then, Father, help us to always be content when you say no. When we ask you to take away pain and you don't do it, help us to trust you. Help us to follow Jesus' example and cling to your plan and your will and help us to, to say your way is enough for us. Help us to do that. Leaning hard, on our Father's arms and seeing how strong you are. Show yourself strong for us, for those of us who are suffering especially. And Father, give us eyes to see not just our present circumstances or suffering, but give us eyes to see the day where all of our pain and all of our suffering will be no more. Father, thank you for pouring out your wrath on your son. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the cup so that the cup we drink is full of nothing but life and salvation and hope and peace and joy. And as we long for that day, help us endure now. Help us suffer to your glory and help us to show others through our pain just how great you are and we ask all this in the power of Christ, amen.